Okay, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, oops, sorry, Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 38. We are back in our study through Mark's gospel this Sunday, after uh, a couple of weeks away from it. So we're rejoining the journey through Mark at verse 35 of chapter 1. Let's uh, take a moment in prayer quickly and then, uh, and then we'll dive in. Lord, thank you that you're here by your Holy Spirit. You are very much with us today. Lord, we pray that as we study this word, we recognize before we begin that this is not just any other book. Uh, we're not studying the words of learned men and women, but we're studying the living word of the eternal God. And in so doing, we're reading a book that is ultimately reading us. And so, Lord, as we study it today, we pray we would not leave the room the same that we came in. We wouldn't leave with a bare knowledge of the truths of the Word, but we'd be transformed by it. We pray, Holy Spirit, come in power even now. Where you're sat in the room, I pray the Holy Spirit would fill you, would begin to open up your heart to receive the good seed, which Jesus says is the Word of God. And for all of you watching at home, uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit be with you mightily today as we study this wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help me, Lord God, to be a good messenger, not to get in the way of your word, but, Father, to declare it as it is, uh, without any spin or any kind of refraction of my own. I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. The title of today's message is Solitary Prayer, Solitary Prayer, and in these few verses we get a very special window into the private prayer life of Jesus. This is a wonderful little portal in this first chapter of Mark, and I don't want for us to miss out on all the depth of it. We are looking at the pattern of of solitary prayer that marked Jesus' life on earth. I want us to bear in mind also that in our last Sunday when we studied Mark's gospel, we covered all of Jesus' exploits on the Sabbath day. I don't know if you remember, but the day immediately preceding this one that we're talking about now in verse 35 was packed full of activity. It was the day on which Jesus entered into Capernaum. He entered into the synagogue and was confronted by a man with a demon. The demon was cast out. Uh, the demon prophesied about who Jesus was. And also Jesus then in the evening of that day healed many sick. In fact, the gospel record tells us that the whole city was gathered at the door and that Jesus healed many sick of various diseases and cast out demons. How many of you know that Jesus is a healer? How many of you understand that Jesus can heal every disease? I want you to put your hand on your body right now, and if you feel sick or infirm, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you still heal today. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we pray, be healed in Jesus' name. Amen. Suffice to say, Jesus had had an extremely busy weekend. And we've noted before that Mark presents Jesus always as the man of action. There's actually a Greek word, I think I mentioned it when we first started out this study, a small Greek particle. Uh, it's the word euthis, euthis, which is translated usually immediately. And if you read the first chapter of Mark and you're reading in the ESV 
or something similar, you'll see that word immediately dotted right through that first chapter. In fact, that Greek word euthis, it actually only appears 51 times in the entire New Testament, and around a fifth of those times are in this chapter right here. So what we're understanding is that Jesus' ministry starts at pace. It starts at a gallop. Mark wants us to know this is a time of great activity and there's barely time to draw breath. There's barely time to pause and take stock. I wonder how many of you have experienced seasons in your life just like that. When you've felt so busy, you're barely able to draw breath and to take stock. Things just seem to come thick and fast and you can't seem to see an end to the busyness. You know in those seasons, don't you, instinctively, that something has to give. Something has to give. What are you going to do? I know that in times like this, when I've been extraordinarily busy, I've often been stuck knowing what to drop. Everything that I'm doing seems absolutely essential. There's no way I could possibly drop one thing. It can feel like spinning plates, can't it? These moments in life, brothers and sisters, can be so challenging, can't they? You know, how can we justify just dropping whatever we're doing and getting away to pray in seasons of extreme busyness? Is it really actually a Christian thing to do to just abandon your post and go and pray? What about all the urgent things that just need doing? Those things that if you don't get them done, no one else will. No one else can. Is it a Christian thing to leave those things undone and skulk off to pray? Surely we shouldn't just as Christians abandon our duties. That wouldn't be very Christ-like, would it? Margaret Magdalene, who was a, a contemplative um, Christian, a woman of prayer, wrote in her book, Jesus, Man of Prayer, she wrote this, Jesus refused to submit to the tyranny of the urgent. That's good, isn't it? Jesus refused to submit to the tyranny of the urgent. You know, there is a cult obsession in the Western world with productivity. There is a cult obsession with being productive. And we want to see busyness as synonymous with productiveness, aren't we? We want to see those as being the same thing, that when I am very busy, I am very productive. And I'm as guilty of this as the next man. There are people in the room that could tell you that and give testimony to that. This obsession with productivity, I believe, has come wholesale into the church of Jesus Christ. We've got programs coming out of our ears. We've got initiatives, conferences, meeting after meeting after meeting. But are we really more productive when we're busy? Are we really serving Jesus better when we're too busy to be alone with him. Is that what Christian productivity looks like? Well, I think today as we look at these few verses, we're going to see a very different style of what productivity can look like. We read this, rising very early in the morning. In fact, in the original language, these, the first few words here are a bit jumbled and awkward. Um, you can very much tell that this is, is a, a testimony that's been written down and it's a, something that the, the writer, that Mark has heard and he's jotting it down as he goes. It's kind of awkward, but it, it's making clear that Jesus rose super early in the morning. We're talking the last watch of the night, which is the, the final three hours of the night, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., now, I randomly, it just happens like this sometimes. It's, I think it's just the providence of God. I've been studying these verses all weekend. And what time should I just randomly wake up this morning but 4 a.m.? 4 a.m. And I'm lying there thinking, oh, God, 
God, why? <laughs> why must you do this? I haven't set my alarm. I'm not trying to be pious, I promise. But I just woke up at four. I could not get back to sleep. And so I thought, this is it. The Lord is obviously wanting me to have a taste of what this is like, you know. So at 4.20, I got out of bed and I went for a prayer walk. And it is dark at 4.20. <laughs> There's no one around. It's a strange but very silent time to be awake. Um, so this is something very interesting that we want to take note of. This isn't just 7 a.m. dawn. We're talking about 4 a.m., very, very early in the morning, the final watch of the night. We can imagine Jesus stealing out of Peter's house. They would all have been sleeping. They've had a very busy day. They've been healing the sick. We don't know what time they went to bed. And Jesus steals out of the house. He, he moves onto the quiet streets and passes hurriedly along them in silence until he reaches the outskirts of Capernaum. You can just imagine, can't you, the sound of the water lapping up against the beach as he passes by the sounds of birds beginning to sing. He hikes up, we're told, into a wild place. Now, around the Sea of Galilee, it is a wild place, especially on the eastern shore. It's very barren wilderness. We can imagine Jesus perhaps hiking up into those barren hills with the dry wadis uh, just to get alone with God. As I preach this, brothers and sisters, I, I want for you not to do something, okay? I want for you not to start beating yourself up, okay? Because as we hear the prayer life of Jesus, it's really easy to then compare our own prayer life. And of course, it's going to pale in comparison with his. But I want you to not be too quick to compare your prayer life to his just yet, because I want for us to have a chance to savor the beauty of what his prayer life looked like. And also, there's more along the way that I think will be good for you to unpack rather than just using this as a bare comparison. I do want for us to draw encouragement from this. I do want for us to come away from today's session perhaps reinvigorated for solitary prayer, but I don't want people to leave feeling beaten up. That's not the intent. So let's be careful not to do that. Um, Jesus actually teaches us about prayer, not just through his teaching of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, and, and not just through his parables, but actually he teaches us a lot about prayer through the gospel narratives. He teaches us about prayer indirectly, and these things are really important to note. We, we read, don't we, in, in Luke's gospel, um, we read that he was often withdrawing to desolate places. In fact, um, it's Luke, see if I can find it here, yeah, Luke chapter 5 verse 15. But now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him, hear him sorry, and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. You hear the sound of that? But he would withdraw. That doesn't sound like a once over situation. That sounds like a pattern, doesn't it? There's a pattern of Jesus withdrawing uh, to pray, to desolate places. And we see this through the gospel narratives over and over again, that there is a very, very, uh, very easy to see pattern of prayer in Jesus' life. And I really want for us to draw from that today. Jesus, when he prays, there are, there are three things about this pattern. There are three things about Jesus' pattern of prayer that we, we must take note of, and, and they are these. The time of that prayer, the time. Number two, the place, the geographical location of that prayer. And thirdly, the manner of that prayer. Was he praying with others? Is he praying alone? What does it look like when we read about Jesus' prayer life? Studying these three aspects of his prayer life are going to help us to see more of Jesus' objectives in prayer. It's important to understand that, isn't it? When we go to prayer, do we often know what we're going in there for? I think we do most often, don't we? We're perhaps going in there with a list of things we want to 
bring to the Lord, to petition Him about. Maybe we're going through a real struggle in life and we need God's wisdom on it. Uh, what is the objective of Jesus' prayer? And by learning this, hopefully it's going to offer us some much-needed direction in our own prayer life. So let's start with time, the time of Jesus' prayer. Jesus picked out a specific designated time to pray. That's what we read about here, isn't it, in verse 35. There's a specific time of prayer. Though Jesus was doubtless always communing with God, there's no two ways about it. There's never a moment when you find Jesus out of conversation with God. But even though that is the case, he still actually commits certain periods of time for prayer and prayer alone. There are holy times during his day. Now, I've heard people say before things like, well, you know, I don't do prayer times because I'm just always in prayer. I'm always in prayer, you know, I'm always praying. I don't, so I don't do prayer times really. Well, all I would say in response is this, is if Jesus designates time in his day for prayer, it would be worthwhile us following his example. You know, certainly that's something we would want to look at, um, especially given the fact that Jesus designated time for prayer in his day and was without sin. Uh, when we pray, we have sin to confess as well as things to ask. Uh, so I think it would be wise to look at this example and see that Jesus, the Lord of glory, the sinless sacrifice for our sins, sets apart time in his day just for prayer, not for other things, but just for prayer. We also find Jesus praying often at a time when it's dark. We find him praying in the morning before the sun rises. We find him after the feeding of the 5,000 disappearing off up a mountain at night. He chose times when it was either very late or very early when the sun had gone down. Why is that significant? Why is it significant that the sun is down when Jesus chooses to pray? Well, I'm going to first read a, a, a quote by the wife of an English Puritan pastor called Joseph Elaine. And his wife wrote this about him after his death. Quote, he did rise constantly at or before the hour of four o'clock in the morning and would be much troubled if he heard smiths or other craftsmen, craftsmen sorry, at their trades before he was at communion with God, saying to me often, how this noise shames me. Does not my master deserve more than theirs? From four till eight in the morning he spent in prayer, holy contemplation, and singing of psalms in which he delighted and did practice alone as well as in the family. Sometimes he would suspend the routine of parochial engagements and devote whole days to these secret exercises, in order to which he would contrive to be alone in some void house or else in some sequestered spot in the open valley. Here there would be much prayer and meditation on God and heaven." End quote. Giving our first few waking moments to God means that we don't give them to something else. <laughs> it's as simple as that. I know my habits when I first wake up in the morning. I know what my flesh wants to do when I first wake up in the morning. It wants to impulsively reach for my phone. I, I want to pick my phone up. I want to see if there are no notifications on there. I want to check those. That's what my flesh wants to do. And unless we're intentional about it, we will reach for whatever grabs our attention first. If that's the news, if that's Facebook, if that's, I don't know, um, something else, you know, something that's worthwhile usually, that's good. It's not all necessarily bad, but it's not God. So we have to be intentional first about choosing to give our first few moments to God. In the morning, there is something, I think, very orderly about that. Giving those first few moments to God in prayer, it actually does a few things. Firstly, it enthrones him. Firstly, it enthrones him. Of course, he's already enthroned. But by giving him these first few moments, we ourselves 
are enthroning him again on the throne of our hearts. We're saying, Lord, you will receive the first few words from my mouth this morning. You will receive the meditation of my heart and my mind before anything else stirs me, before I begin thinking about how to respond to an email or how to check my notifications and what to think about what the news is saying, you shall receive my attention before anything else, therefore enthroning him in his rightful place. Secondly, it centers us. There is a subjective impact within ourselves where we are centered. There's an equilibrium that happens when we focus on God first. We were created for his glory. You were made to know God. And so when we give him those first few moments, there's a centering that takes place within us. We're focused on him, and that does something. That balances us. And then thirdly, of course, early morning prayer prepares you for what's ahead. It's, it's of no insignificance that Jesus chooses to pray at these early or late hours, either immediately after some great work or immediately before some great work. It's the source of strength for him. Why else do we want to take Jesus' example here? Why does Jesus rise so early to pray or wait until it's dark to pray? I, I think one word is very important here. What's different about the very early morning from mid-morning? Or what's different about late at night than early evening? Silence. Silence. Jesus got up before dawn because there was silence. There was stillness, peace, ah, quiet. No distractions. No noise grabbing for your attention. No passers-by recognizing him as he walks along the way. Oh, aren't you that guy that was in the synagogue? Oh, yes. Oh, well, actually, I've got back pain. Could, well, you wouldn't mind. Oh, thank you. There's none of that. There's no worthwhile distractions. No food to prepare for the hungry disciples as they wait. Nothing to get done at 4 a.m. in the morning, aside from prayer. Brothers and sisters, solitary prayer, the type of prayer we see Jesus utilizing here, it requires silence. It requires it. Of course, it's difficult to get the same quality of silence living in a city like we do, or living with uh, large families of children and dogs. It's, it can be difficult. Maybe we can't achieve the same quality of silence, but we can certainly get closer to silence than not. Psalm 5 verse 3 says, Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. And watch, prayer is sacrifice, isn't it? In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. And watch. Psalm 63, verse 1, depending on what translation you have, but in, in the Septuagint, it is literally, uh, God, you are my God. Early will I come to you. Early will I come to you. External silence is most necessary to cultivate the internal silence. And indeed, it is impossible to become inwardly silent without loving external silence and retirement. That's Madame Guillon, who was a rather interesting character uh, and a woman of prayer. We have to recognize that our bodies and souls weren't made to cope with 24-7 noise and activity. They just weren't built to cope. I mean, I'm living proof of this. You know, I'm living proof of this myself. I've made myself way too busy in the past, and my body has paid the price. My mind has paid the price. I don't know about you, but if you've ever struggled with mental health issues, anxiety, depression, or you've ever had to be on prescription drugs, you've got um, insomnia, many of these things 
uh, are at least in part brought on by us neglecting Sabbath during our weeks, neglecting this place of silence and quiet and prayer and, and making an idol out of busyness. It's true, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves, it, it's true. It can be so hard to break the habit of busyness, can't it? But Jesus models this, doesn't he, time and time again. We have to recognize we weren't built for 24-7 action. And I think when we look at Jesus praying here, I think there's more to it than just a bare example. There's a commentator called Clark who believes that Jesus' prayers here, all they are is that they've been preserved for us in Scripture as an example. They're just there for us to go, wow, you know, I wish I could pray like that. You know, I'm going to try and pray like that. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. I think Clark is wrong. I think Clark oversimplifies this. You see, Jesus in his incarnation, he was both man and God. He was really human as well as really God. The Chalcedonian Creed affirms that. He says, he's like us in all respects except for sin. So though he is also the eternal word, as John calls him, he's existed from the beginning and there's nothing that's in in existence that didn't come through him, though that is also true, it's also true to say that he has a fully human soul. He has emotions. He gets tired. He needs to sleep. Jesus slept. We find him sleeping, don't we, in Scripture? The human soul, Jesus' human soul needed rest. It needed quiet. It needed stillness and solitude, just as his body needed to sleep and to eat. And Jesus' solitary prayer life is really essential to his mission. It's not just there for us to see as an example. Jesus saw it as absolutely imperative to his mission and his ministry. Jesus' practice of removing himself from noise and from busyness to be with the Father in secret places empowers him to fulfill his Father's business in the noisy places. Being with God in the stillness empowers you to be with God in the noise and the busyness of life. Henri Nouan, who is a, a French-Canadian uh, Christian, said this, a life without a lonely place, that is a life without a quiet center, easily becomes destructive. A life without solitary prayer, a, a life without withdrawal, to that secret place with God doesn't just bring harm upon you, it, br- it brings harm upon others. You become stressed, you become anxious, you become to make extraordinary high demands upon other people. You resent it when you see others who are at peace because you don't have that same peace. You know, it's almost like the proverb, isn't it? The uh, Proverbs 4, 23 that says, out of the heart flow the issues of life. Guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. If your heart is a raging sea, the waters are tossed about by constant crises of busyness and interruptions and urgent things you've got to do, how are you possibly going to broker peace into any relationship that you have? You're simply not going to be able to. For out of the heart flow the issues of life. You, you, you don't get to transcend what's going on within you. You don't get to suddenly just say, well, my internal reality is a tempestuous sea and it's, it's, it's dangerous in there, but I'm going to choose not to let that out and I'm going to be peaceful and I'm going to put a smile on my face. Not going to work. Not going to happen. It's going to come out. So Jesus' practice of this quiet time with his Father, away from busyness, 
enables him to bring peace into crazy situations. Think about how many times in the Gospels you find him pressed on every side by people demanding his attention. And in those moments, he has love and compassion and peace. How about you, if I was to drop you into the same situation where people are pressing you on every side, wanting you, needing an answer from you, what's going to come out of you? Is it going to be frustration? Anger? Or maybe a very carnal desire to be wanted and needed and to draw all men to yourself? Because that's what will happen without this place of retreat and quiet with the Father. Jesus' practice of solitary prayer didn't just have a time, it also had a preferred location as we see in this passage here and in Luke. We see him constantly withdrawing to places that were desolate as the Bible calls them. He preferred to be in these empty places, the the wilderness, the desert regions, or, or on mountains. Why? Well, he wanted to be away from distraction. You know, he could have gained silence by just being outside Peter's house, couldn't he? He he could have just walked into the square of Capernaum. There would have been nobody around. Uh, He would have had silence, you know, comparatively. But what would have happened if he raised his voice just a bit too much and woke somebody and they come out? Are you all right, Jesus? And there you go. You're distracted. Jesus saw that he didn't just require silence for his prayer. He required some physical distance. He needed to go somewhere he couldn't be gotten at, to a place where he was truly alone with God. Being somewhere alone while you're praying actually allows you the freedom to really pour your soul out as well. Have any of you ever done that? You've gone on a walk somewhere, there's nobody around, and you can really give it some in prayer, and you can speak out loud. You know, sometimes I pray in my head, but a lot of the time I like to pray out loud. I like to use words. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's kind of not appropriate when you're praying in one room of your house and the kids are in the other room and you're, you're saying some weird stuff, you know. <laughs> it doesn't go down well to you. Are you okay, Daddy? I'm fine. I'm fine. You need that space, don't you? You need that place where, you know, you can be alone with God. You can pour your heart out. You, you don't want to wake the kids or weird them out. You don't want to annoy the neighbors. And uh, the space and time that's afforded by being removed from your regular habitation allows your soul to decompress in prayer. You know, it allows you room. And you often find in those places, that's where you really encounter God. I don't know for me, it's not always possible for me to get away. You know, I have responsibilities that keep me in a, you know, at home um, near enough to pick the kids up from school. I can't always do this. But every now and again, I'll, I like to go out to Canuck Chase, uh, which is big enough for me to pretty much get lost in. You know, I can just find some gully in a little wood where no one ever goes apart from weirdos. And I'll go in there and I'll check for weirdos. And if there's none there, I'll climb a tree and I'm just alone with the Lord and no one finds me. And it's amazing sometimes what God will do in those places. I don't know if you've experienced that, that sometimes when you're in that quiet place away from everything and you just have space, there are things that bubble up to the surface in your heart, aren't they, that, that have needed dealing with for a long time, that until you got out and away, they couldn't rise up and you couldn't deal with them. You know, that's what that place of solitary prayer allows for. Interestingly, the Greek word for solitary praise, eremos, is the same word for wilderness, uh, which we see in verse 4 of chapter 1 and also in verse 12, where Jesus is tempted. And in Mark, uh, wherever we find Jesus praying, there are three occasions in Mark where we find Jesus praying, and every time it's in the wilderness. And Mark always connects wilderness with a place of repentance or restoration, or fellowship with God, or trials. The place of solitary prayer is a place 
of restoration. It's a place where the Holy Spirit strengthens you, builds you up, heals you from things you maybe didn't even realize you were hurting from that you just don't get when we're praying all together. I mean, praying together is wonderful, isn't it? I love to pray together with the church, but there's a place of restoration in being fully alone with God. There's, there's a place for fellowship with God. There's a place for intimacy with Him that you just can't attain when you're praying in your bedroom as opposed to when you get out and you're away from distractions. Jesus often withdrew to pray in the wilderness, either immediately before or immediately after big moments. I think that's interesting as well. You know, you would have expected after this full day on the Sabbath that maybe he'd have a little lie-in, you know, kick back, rest, get himself a good breakfast, he's got a busy day ahead. But instead you find him getting up at 4 a.m. and praying. He, he knows what's coming. He, he is preparing for opposition very often we find in Mark that Jesus has these moments when he's praying on his own. He's actually preparing for some kind of challenge, some kind of demonic assault maybe, uh, some kind of challenge to his ministry or person or attack from the scribes and the Pharisees. These times of solitary prayer really build us up and equip us to handle those moments because you will face spiritual warfare, will you not? You face spiritual warfare every day. Solitary prayer equips you for those moments. Spurgeon said, secret prayer is the secret of prayer, the soul of prayer, the seal of prayer, and the strength of prayer. This is where I'm going to start landing this. The witness of Scripture here tells us that Simon and those who are with him searched for him. In fact, the parallel passage in Luke doesn't mention Simon, but it says many went out to search for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. I want you to imagine yourself right now withdrawn in some desolate place in prayer and out of the blue, someone comes to you, maybe a work associate, maybe a member of the family. Hey, everyone's looking for you. What do you feel? What do you feel? Do you feel guilty? anxious, like you've done something wrong maybe. In fact, the, what Jesus' response is amazing. He turns around and he says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. I think it's interesting here that the, the word that's translated, you know, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. The Greek word there is katedioxen uh, from dioko, which is actually the word for persecute or hunt. So it wasn't that they kind of ambled around searching. It's, it's essentially saying they kind of hunted for him, you know. How often is it that the urgent things in life hunt you down? They don't just kind of idly waddle past you, sort of saying, hey, when you got a moment, like, no. Urgent things hunt you down. They get to you wherever you are. And there's a sense of, hey, if you don't pay attention to me right now, something bad is going to happen. You're a failure if you don't deal with me right now. That's how urgent things get to you, isn't it? You know, when they discovered him, they lay on him this urgent need. Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. And it's one of my favorite things about the Lord is right here. Because I, I think of myself or you know, any one of us here responding. You know, I might have said something like, oh, okay, I, I'm sorry. Uh, I just needed a bit of prayer time, you know, explaining myself. Uh, I should have let you know where I was going uh, and when I would be back. Um, but okay, let's go and see them, and hopefully we won't have kept them waiting too long. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't panic. He doesn't feel guilty for a minute about taking time out to pray alone. He actually dismisses this demand upon his time. He totally dismisses it. These are people waiting to be healed. These are people waiting to be set free from demonic oppression. He dismisses them. It's not why I came. It's not why I came. Let's go to other villages. I came to preach. Isn't that incredible? It wasn't that the need of these people was abhorrent to him. He, he just knew what his purpose was. 
and that meeting need in that moment was not his purpose. There's no doubt for me here that it was Jesus' prayer time that enabled him to respond that way. Stick with me, I'm nearly finished, okay? It was prayer that he was strengthened by. It was prayer that reminded him of his purpose in his humanity, that is, and refocused him on what he was to do next. He was there to preach the kingdom. Meeting needs, brothers and sisters, is a wonderful Christian activity that you and I will be involved in until we go to glory. And it is part of God's good work for us in this world. But I want to say this also. Meeting needs consistently and always, every time they arise, is not a Christian thing to do. It's not a Christian thing to do. We're not to live from one urgent thing to the next, meeting need after need after need after need. What about God? Where does he come in the priority list? You know, I think sometimes there's a place where we can get into an unhealthy habit of meeting others' needs. We have a kind of savior complex. We think, oh, unless I respond to that text right now, you know, they're going to feel down and then that'll be my fault and I could have done something and I didn't. And we can just work ourselves up over these things, can't we? And we forget that, you know, God's in charge. God's sovereign over their life. You know, he's going to get them what they need. I don't need to fix everyone's life. You know, sometimes when we go into prayer and we get a little text message or a buzz on the phone, we see it out of the corner of our eye. Oh, no. It's that person. That's, that's going to be urgent. You know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't really be here. You know, I should be dealing with this. I should have done it last night. Jesus doesn't do that. He didn't even tell them where he was going. He didn't tell them when he was going to be back. He just went. Think of that. We might think of that as kind of rude these days, right? Come on, Jesus, be more organized. Come on, Jesus, think about the morale of the disciples and the people in Capernaum. You didn't even let them know where you're going? You won't even come back to heal poor Johnny with his broken back? It's not very Christ-like of you, is it, Jesus? (laughs) But he wasn't governed by need. Jesus' solitary prayer life teaches us this. It teaches us the necessity of secret prayer, of silence, of seclusion, and of putting time with God ahead of busyness and quote-unquote productivity. If we're not prayerful, we're not really being productive anyway. I love what Spurgeon said about this verse. He said, as you love God and would desire to honor him by a useful life, put far from you the temptation to sip of the intoxicating cup of human honor. Drafts of worldly glory are not for the priests of the Most High. Amen? Amen. I want you to see this as well. As well as looking at the pattern of Jesus' prayer life here and being encouraged by it. I want you to understand something further. I want you to understand that Jesus' prayer life actually saves you and sustains you. It's not just an example. I want to say this to you right now. You are saved because Jesus prays for you. You will continue to be saved because Jesus prays for you. We mustn't think of Jesus' prayer life as just an example, as Clark seems to suggest. I think we miss half the truth here if we see it like that. We've got to see it that Jesus' prayer life and devotion to God is now our devotion to God through faith. You see, when you think about the greatest commandment, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? It is this, love the Lord that your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. Where do you fit on that? How, do you, how are you getting on with that? That's the bar. Anything under that is sin. 
and the wages of sin are death. Romans 6, 24. So if you fail in any one moment of any one day of your life, if you fail to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, guess what? You are a sinner condemned before God and you will suffer his wrath for eternity unless, unless you receive a righteousness which is from God by faith, all of grace. And in doing so, Jesus and all of his perfect, active, and passive obedience to God and loving God with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his soul, all of his strength, that is reckoned to you. So when we read about this in chapter 1, verse 35, guess what? That perfect prayer life was reckoned to you. Jesus prayed, and now that prayer life and that perfect devotion belongs to us through faith. And we are no longer under the wrath of God, but under his blessing. And in his covenant, we are his children. It's not only that either. Jesus is praying now. He still prays today. Jesus is the great high priest. He offers intercession for his children before the Father. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays for everyone who the Father has given him. I want you to just listen to this. This is John 17, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There is a group of people that is given to Jesus by the Father. That is the church. That is the elect of God. Verse 9 and 11. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me. There again we have the elect of God. For they are yours. All mine are yours and all yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be, may be one even as we are one. Verses 17 to 21. Sanctify them in the truth. Jesus is praying this for his people. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now listen to this. This is where you appear in the Bible. Did you know you're in the Bible? Listen to this. I do not ask for these only. I do not ask for these only. He's talking about those who are with him there in that moment in the flesh who are with him. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. Future tense. I pray for those who will believe in me. Do you believe in Jesus today? Have you got a saving faith in him? where you know on the day that you go to glory or you die that you will stand before God and there will be no other claim that you make other than the work, the finished work of the cross. Do you believe in Jesus in that way? Then Jesus is praying for you in John 17. I don't pray just for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is praying now for his children. He's praying for those who believe on his name. Do you believe on his name? Can you honestly say this morning that Jesus is more to you than just an example? Can you honestly say that Jesus is more to you than just a name? Can you say that Jesus is more to you than just a gateway to blessing in this world? Can you say that Jesus is your Lord? Can you say that he's your savior? Do you cling to him for forgiveness of your sins? Do you receive from him his perfect righteousness? Is he your Lord? Is he your love? 
Is he your most high? Then Jesus prays for you. The question is this, does Jesus get what he prays for? I think there's only one orthodox answer to that question. Father, we know that through your Son, Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, you will save for yourself a people in this earth. There's no two ways about it. The Son has his prayers answered by the Father. And our prayer today is that as we come away from this session, that Lord, we would learn from the example of Christ on earth, of Lord, how you prayed, how you retreated from the busyness of life, from distractions, from urgent things, and you secluded yourself to, to be with the Father. To be in a space where only the Father could be with you. God, how we pray that we would have that same focus as we leave today. God, that we'd make it, again, just a desire to get alone with you. To be away with you. To switch off our phones. Oh God, we pray that we would have a richer and a deeper prayer life. Moreover, God, we pray that if there are those listening today who cannot say in all honesty that they know the Lord, that by your grace they would repent of their sins now and believe upon his name. And Lord, we thank you that all those believing in you are also sustained by you. Your prayers are what will carry us through to the finish line. We thank you for your finished work. We bless your name, Lord Jesus. We give you the honor and the glory. Amen. If you want to stand with me now, we are going to finish with a song. Thank you for sticking with me. I always go on longer than I think I will. You've done well. We'll finish with the song. I just want to say how great it is to be with you all as well in person. It's wonderful to see you uh, face to face. And of course, those of you at home as well, uh, thanks for watching in. We miss you. And um, we're just glad that you could take the time to be with us today. And we hope you've been blessed by the word today as well. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike.